Well, good morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning. If you would flip there. I want to give compliments to our pastors. It's a pastor appreciation month. And apparently we are supposed to recognize our pastors on today. So I'm recognizing them. Also, I like your outfit, Rod. <laughs> we didn't plan that at all. Uh, uh, we Maybe one day I'll be cool and have no hair and a beard. But I don't know. We'll see. Um, in all reality, though, please uh, continue to be in prayer for our pastors. Um, it is their task to care for the souls of the church members, and that is no easy task, especially with some of our souls here. <laughs> Not only that, they... Um, teach us sound doctrine and to fight off bad doctrine. That is the role of the pastor. So continue praying for them. As we'll see in this sermon, they're really no strong men of God. Now you might be thinking, wow, how rude. Have you, haven't you seen our pastors? Like, blameless, practically, obedient. Now this is what I mean. These men recognize that they need the Savior, that without him, they are weak and feeble, and so they depend entirely on him, and his glories are demonstrated through them. Now, this is not my analogy. I don't take credit for it. Out of my ignorance, I have failed to find a better one. Paul Washer said this. When he was a younger man, he was, he was out surfing one day. It happened to be a red flag day. Now, us in the Midwest, we don't know what that means, but evidently it means that the waves were, were very violent that day. The waves were crashing. They were big. He was having a difficult time surfing, but then noticed a smaller, younger man struggling off in the distance even more. When he went over to help him, he was drowning. Now, he probably had 85 pounds on this kid. But he knew that if he was going to grab him and try to bring him to the shore, he would be taken down with him. Because that's what happens when a person is drowning. It took six other experienced surfers in 25 minutes before they got him to the shore. Now, why was this young man so strong in the water? Was it because he was a better swimmer than our friend Paul Washer? Was it out of his sheer willpower that he would have taken him down with him? Was it fear? Maybe a little bit. Washer says that it wasn't by means of some extra strength that this young man would have taken him down, but his utter need. He says he knew that he had nothing. He knew that he was going to die. It was that realization of his utter and absolute weakness that would have caused him to cling to another man three times his size with such strength that he would have drowned him. Paul says that is true spirituality. As we established last week, we live in a world that hates God and hates his people. We must depend solely on the power of our great God if we're going to make it. Redemption for us and for anyone else in this world is found only in the blood of Christ. Look at Acts chapter 4, start in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, 
and John and Alexander and all who were on the high priestly or of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we are but weak people and feeble. But it is that realization of weakness where we see the glories of God and the power of the Holy Spirit at work. Father, change us, convert us, make us obedient children to you. And please be with us this morning. Amen. See, the apostles, Peter and John, were arrested. That's what we talked about last week. They're arrested in the evening, and the Sanhedrin, or the great council of the nation, the Jewish people, they met in the mornings. So they're officially put on trial the next day, which meant that they are arrested, they're held in prison overnight, and then put on trial in the morning. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. With Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Resources point, they point out that the Jewish high court, also known as the Sanhedrin, consisted of 71 members. 70 elders as prescribed to Moses in the book of Numbers chapter 11 and one high priest as presiding officer. Now this is who Peter is about to address. You see the name Annas Caiaphas, John, and Alexander. Most likely, Annas is an ex-high priest, as we know from the book of John, chapter 18. When Jesus was first taken to be put on trial, he was taken to Annas. This is the same guy. He was a Sadducee, possibly the president of the Sanhedrin. He is also the father-in-law to Caiaphas, the current high priest, who we also see right here in this chapter. Evidently, the Romans... Outside of the Jewish religion, the Romans appointed the high priest, which would actually be a form of betraying the Jewish people. And a little is known about John and Alexander, who are mentioned here, but they were also significant figures among the Sanhedrin. You can see there's lots of oligarchy here, family rule, who knows who in this aristocracy. And then they ask the setup questions, and it gives Peter the opportunity to proclaim the gospel once again. Look at verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? In other words, who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority to say these things and perform these miracles? Because I just healed a, a, a lame man. What magic are you using? Remember, these are uneducated Galileans. This is like a couple of high school students walking into 
a classroom full of seminary professors and trying to teach them. As we see later in this chapter, in, in verse 13, the rulers notice that they're common men. And it says, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, they could not point to the apostles' education or social status for the content and authority of their preaching. Because it wasn't there. They could only point to Jesus. Now let it be the mark of the preacher, the mark of the proclaimer of the gospel, that he has been with Jesus. Now of course we know that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that Peter and John do these things. Look at verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, Remember, not long before Acts 4, Peter is the one who denied the Savior three times. Once before a servant girl, a girl, she was a doorkeeper. John Calvin says of Peter in verse 8 here, if it were up to him, he would have utterly fainted in front of this assembly. Much is said about Peter in the Gospels, and many are quick to point out that he had the tendency to stick his foot in his mouth. However, in Acts 4, we see him in a different light. Once a man that did not see the hope of salvation and resurrection of Christ, or at least not fully, he had, had been seen, he had been in a sense of hopelessness. He was scared to the point of denying Jesus three times. He was weak. This phrase that Luke includes here, filled with the Holy Spirit, is so important. Let there be no confusion that this is the work of God, not the flesh. Peter is completely dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. In Greek, the phrase means filled to the maximum. Here he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He has a new nature. He is a different man than he was. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does that look like? Let me uh, remind you of our prior condition. Flip to the book of Ezekiel, if you would. No, that's not the book you were expecting. Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. Says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold... There were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can those bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. What is the condition of man on his own? He's dead. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Spiritually, you're dead. What does a dead man do? Nothing. He rots in his own filth and decay. He's unresponsive. He's stewing in his own sewage. Romans 3 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. This is the description of man apart from Christ. He is not bothered by it either. 
He's not bothered by the filth of his sin that he dwells in. He's part of it. He is it. One preacher says that the spiritually dead man is unresponsive to God and only responsive to sin and wickedness. He's a pile of dry bones. Look at verse 4 of Ezekiel. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. God caused the bones to hear and to hear his word. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Verse 6, and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. These dry bones will be brought to life and will know that he is God. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. The breath came upon these slain, came into these bodies. And they lived. Look at verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Verse 14. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. The house of Israel, a people with bones dried up, hope lost, cut off. He will put his spirit within them and they shall live. The Lord will open their graves and raise them from their graves. He will raise them out of their deathbeds and they will know that he is the Lord. The spirit of the almighty Yahweh God will put in them his spirit and they will live. He will place them in their land and, and they will know that he is the Lord. What does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, first, you're a hopelessly lost pile of dry bones dwelling in your sin, unresponsive to God, a dead man. But by, by way of the atoning blood of Christ, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, the one true God causes you to hear his word, gives you new life, and puts his spirit within you. When the spirit of God fills you, you're a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, you have been made new. You have a new nature. This is an act of the triune God. 
There is salvation, conversion in this name and in no other name except Jesus, whom God brought you to and by breathing his spirit in you made you a living being. Salvation in Christ includes being filled with the Holy Spirit, God's spirit. We see the works of the spirit of God in a lot in the Old Testament. Usually in the prophets, the word of the Lord came upon them. The Spirit of God came upon them. The difference now in the book of Acts after Pentecost is that every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. Every believer has access to God. By receiving the Spirit, the believer receives truth and holiness, things which otherwise could he could have never attained because he's receiving the mind of Christ, God's own Spirit, who declares to him what is God's. Receiving the Spirit is No little subject. This conversion is an act of God on a man's soul. This believer is saying no to his former worldly life and is taking on the character of God, which will involve true transformation and sanctification of a man's heart. We will have the ability to actually know the one true God. Yet, You'll never reach the peak of knowledge, for our king's excellencies extend for an eternity. So the question is, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Is it described of your life that you surrender greatly for Jesus? Is it described of you that you give up much for the cause of the gospel? Is it described of your life that you know the Lord and are filled with the Holy Spirit? Has your life been transformed? It is marked, is it marked by the Holy Spirit, by His power? And I don't mean that you're trying to go out and speak in tongues. This is power to actually know the one true God, the creator of the universe, who brings the dead to life. Is your life defined by the anointing power of the Holy Spirit, where the glories of the Lord are demonstrated through you? His vessel. Have you been transformed by the word? Do you have a greater and more intimate knowledge and love for Christ? Are you converted? Does the Holy Spirit dwell in you? When you speak and act, does it reflect Christ? And the commands of scripture? Are your words presenting truth and life to other people? Do you strive to care for the widow and the orphan? Do you demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Romans 8 says, talking of the truly converted in Christ, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, it was imperative that this phrase was used here in Acts 4. Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because we saw what Peter would be like if it were up to his flesh. He denied the Savior. 
Yet this broke him. It's important that we see that Peter was broken. For it was in this sorrow and despair that he repented and he recognized his weakness and his utter need for the Savior. Paul Washer once said, to the degree that God will use you, he will break you. He says, we have the tendency to see a man of God and attribute credit to him. He's so strong. He's so committed and devoted. No, no. This man realizes his weakness. He realizes that without Christ, he's nothing. So he depends on him all the greater. It is not the man that is strong. It is the one who dwells in him. He clings to the word day and night. He's not satiated until he has been in communion with the Father in humble prayer. Then the glories and excellencies of our fathers are demonstrated through this man's life. By the power of the Holy Spirit. There are really no strong men of God. There are weak men that cling to the Savior. Peter, in his walk with the Lord, was in a place of total surrender. Complete dependence on the Spirit of God. With nothing else, he stands before his accusers, the ones indicting him, filled with the Holy Spirit, and proclaims the one and only message that can bring life. Jesus and him crucified and risen. Once a man who denied the Savior here by the power of the Spirit proclaims the gospel in front of the Jewish elite. So don't come with your motorcycles and raffle tickets. That's not going to bring the dead bones to life. Only the power of the word of God. The word in the flesh. Jesus, our Savior. Peter was not offering the Jewish elite motorcycles. He was offering them salvation. He presents the king to them. Look back at Acts chapter 4. Verse 9. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. He answers their questions. He's polite, but bold. By what power, by what name? He answers this, but also addresses the scene beforehand, the healing of the lion man. Peter, in a sense, presupposes what reasons the Sanhedrin would have arrested them. If their reasoning is because they've done a good deed, then your justice system is unjust. Then as if the Sanhedrin didn't realize that this is Jesus, who we now realize is the Messiah, wherein there is salvation, Peter tells them, this is Jesus Christ, Christ, referring to the Messiah. This is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The Messiah whom they know as Jesus from the town of Nazareth. Who in reality is God manifested in the flesh. The one who is from the beginning. Who they crucified. Let it be known to all the Sanhedrin. And all the people of Israel. Everyone. That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. By him this man is healed. The name above every name. 
the most powerful, sovereign, and holy Son of Man, Jesus. The one who was in the beginning, who was with God and is God. The one whom all things were made. The one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, who is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The one who is true light and shines in the darkness. The one who emptied himself, taking the form of a servant who humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The one who is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from the dead. The one who is above every name and every creature that has ever or ever will exist. In whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The preeminent Christ, Peter says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you will. He presents the Messiah. While Peter is doing this, he also indicts his indicters. This is significant because he's calling out their sin. Man must be presented with with the realities and consequences of sin. So that he would repent and see the good news of the gospel. When confronted with these realities, we see the purpose of Jesus going to the cross. Athanasius, an ancient theologian, wrote... For speaking of the manifestation of the Savior to us, it is necessary also to speak of the origin of human beings. In order that you might know that our own cause was the occasion of his descent. And that our own transgression evoked the words love for human beings. So that the Lord both came to us and appeared among human beings. For we were the purpose of his embodiment. And for our salvation, he so loved human beings as to come and be and appear in a human body. Peter proclaims with boldness, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God in the flesh, crucified and raised from the dead. This is the power. There is power in this message of Christ and him crucified and risen. And last week I mentioned that many churches feel the need to resort to silly gimmicks to attract people to their buildings. This is because their pastors, if they're saved, have very little power in their preaching. Their messages have little to no tangible weight-bearing application on the lives of their church members. Peter is an example of one who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, preaches in his power and with authority. And why should we preach with authority? We are not, we're not apostles. Why not just give a biblical commentary on the text? With no application? Well, because Jesus preached with authority and great application. In Matthew 7 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, after he had taught them, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes who would just repeat other scribes. He has given us his word and the anointing of the Holy Spirit To proclaim the message of salvation. Let it be the mark of the preacher to depend on the Holy Spirit and preach with authority. Arguably, Peter could have been categorized with some of the great cowards of their time. At least at one point in his life. He denied the Savior three times. 
once in front of a young girl. Yet it's exactly these people that God uses. You can see that when a man is gripped by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will represent Christ even before the angry elites of the Jewish religion. I'm greatly concerned with the men of our time, myself included sometimes. There are more cowardly men in our churches than there are cows in the pastures. Most men in our churches have no clue what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To abandon hope in everything but the power of the Spirit. Or to live life with nowhere to turn but to Christ. Now we, we can sit here and blame culture. We can blame feminism. And you'd have a valid argument for making men like this. But in reality we've become weak and lazy. Men were not crea- created to sit on their mama's couch and play video games. Our design is to reflect the image of God. To love your wife as Christ loved the church, laying your life down for her. To raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. To stand for the truth of God's word even when the entire Sanhedrin is against you. To take risks for the gospel. Denying yourself. Picking up your cross and following Christ to execution. Oh, it will be tough. It's a constant battle. But this is the war we are fighting. However, the sooner you realize that the normal Christian life is a constant battle, the sooner you will be on your knees in utter dependence on the Lord. However, before we pull up our John Wayne bootstraps, start circling the wagons, notice the apostles' reaction to this persecution. John MacArthur points out that their reaction to being arrested, put in prison overnight, and being put on trial is not resistance, but submission. Notice that. It seems as though they are willing to let this happen. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying there's never a time to take up arms. There may indeed be times in which it is right and good to take up arms. But I'll let your pastor tell you when that is. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm not advocating some form of pacifism here. However, in this instance, as we see with most cases of persecution for following Christ, the apostles accept it. And then they they keep on going with the gospel. They keep relying not on the fleshly schemes, but on the power of the Holy Spirit. A missionary once said, It would be easier to lift Mount Everest and cast it into the sea than to take one inch of Satan's dominion in, in your own power, in our own power. Satan laughs at our endless strategies and mocks our, our clever schemes. But when one man lashes himself to the word and wears out his knees in prayer, all of hell shudders. Get up, men. Fight. Get alone with God. Constantly. And start fighting this battle with prayer and then take this gospel even to those who persecute you. There is power in the word. Power unto salvation. In the recent past, I was taking some heat for standing on God's truths. Insults were being thrown at me and my family. Jasmine and I were considering taking some action. Maybe we shouldn't talk to them anymore. Maybe we should distance ourselves can't get away with insulting me and my family. 
those were things I actually said. Then one of our beloved pastors gives some advice. His name starts with J and ends with Asen. That's your own joke, I'm sorry. He says, accept the persecution, keep on loving them, keep on sharing the gospel with them. You see, this is the pattern that we see from the apostles. They're arrested, they're imprisoned, they're put on trial. Paul was stoned nearly to death. He doesn't get a militia. He gets back up and he goes back in. Why was there no resistance? Perhaps the apostles realize that they didn't do anything wrong, so there's no accusation. They're blameless. Maybe they're trusting the sovereign God. The almighty God would see them through. Maybe they want to see this, they want to use this as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to the Sanhedrin. Maybe it's a combination of all of these. Regardless, what happens? They use this as an opportunity to proclaim Christ. Remember, this is not the Sanhedrin's first hearing of Christ. They're the ones that put our Savior on trial and turn him over to be executed. Of all people, this gospel would have cut them to the heart. And maybe that's why they're so angry. Because they're hardened. Their hearts are hard. Look at verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter is referencing Jesus' words in Matthew 21:42, which is a fulfillment of the prophecy mentioned in Isaiah and Psalm 118. Go ahead, let's go ahead and flip there, Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verse 33. Hear another parable. There is a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the, to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death. And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never heard, have you never read the scriptures in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when, he, when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, the Jews denied Jesus. They denied that Jesus was truly the Messiah. That's why they sought after signs. They wanted Jesus to prove it, to prove that he was who he said he was. He didn't match their ideal Messiah. He was the stone that they stumbled upon. They rejected him. 
So Jesus himself says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. This is referring to the new church. See, this is what is marvelous about the gospel. Christ takes what is weak and foolish to the world and uses it for his purposes. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me read this to you. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, God uses what is foolish to the world for his purposes. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, there's no strong men. There's no noble men. There's only the power of God at work in them. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let no one, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, Jukes, Jews seek signs. Gentiles have a heathen background. They seek wisdom and philosophy. To them, the word of the cross is a stumbling block and foolish. But to those who have received the spirit of God, the mind of Christ, we understand that this is the power of God unto salvation. And he chooses to use the unexpected, the foolish, weak, and unestablished according to worldly standards, so that no human being might boast or brag in the presence of God. All credit belongs to the Lord. No one can look at a weak coward and say, look at his accomplishments, because they aren't there. There, there is no glory in the flesh. They will look at him and say, wow, look at what God can do. I'll look back at Acts 4. Peter says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Referring to the Jewish people and the Sanhedrin. Jesus has become the cornerstone on which the entire church is pieced together. And then verse 12 of Acts 4. He says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This may just be the most offensive verse to our culture today. Jesus, the one and only way for eternal life. There is salvation. There is eternal life in no other name. You don't get to heaven through Krishna or Allah or by being a good person. 
You don't get to heaven by being the most welcoming person who demonstrates the most equality and inclusion. You see, the world is okay with religion. It's even okay with some versions of Christianity, if you can call it that. But as soon as you make an exclusive claim, you're a bigot. As soon as you say that swearing is wrong or homosexuality is wrong, you're narrow-minded. As soon as you actually apply what the Bible says, there's pushback. These are the realities of living in a pluralistic culture. Contrary to popular belief, there is absolute truth. There has to be for anything to even exist. And because of that reality from God, we can understand that God created the universe and established standards by which we ought to live. And further, he provided one way by which we might enjoy eternity with him. And that way is Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, but Jesus Christ in him alone. In John chapter 15 and 16, after Jesus tells the disciples that the world will hate them, because the world hated him, and he tells them that the helper, the spirit of God will come, he says that they will, they will be kicked out of synagogues and killed by people that think they're offering a service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor the Son. These are religious people. People that claim to worship the same God. They would have been kicked out. They would be kicked out and killed for making the exclusive claim that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Messiah, is the only way of salvation. What does this look like today? Perhaps it's the religious elite that have been doing church a certain way for the past 80 years, who hold more regard for their legalism than for Christ. Or perhaps it's those that claim to follow Jesus, but they just tweak the gospel to appeal to more people. Religious people, people claiming to be Christians, will persecute followers of Jesus. People that belong to churches and in the name of equality and justice have compromised the gospel who are afraid of offending people, so they welcome sin and they preach a different gospel. That instead of salvation in Christ and Christ alone, they preach Jesus as your buddy. It was only love. And they forget the aspects of the gospel that talk about sin and the punishment for sin. Oh, but they think they're doing a service to God by being so loving that half their church is gay. My friends, there's a lot of nice people in hell. Do not bow the knee to Baal. If we do not proclaim the full gospel of Christ crucified on our behalf, our sins, and raised from the dead in victory, and the good commands and standards that bear weight on our lives, then we will simply love people to hell. People cannot be saved in the name of love or equality or inclusion or diversity. In Christ Jesus, in his name alone, we must be saved. Do not misunderstand me. I'm not telling you to be a forceful jerk. But do not compromise the gospel for the sake of being nice. R.C. Sproul once said, if we love people, we will warn them about the consequences of dying in their sins. But with this comes the good news of the gospel. We don't have to continue in sin. We can be saved. And we will be saved in Christ, in Christ alone. The apostles, they, they could have made peace saying, you know what? We're sorry. This wasn't our place to preach in the temple. 
Sorry we're so harsh. Calling you out for crucifying the Savior? We'll go somewhere else and preach. No, they didn't do that. My friends, do not deny our master and compromise the gospel because you're afraid of confrontation. Make peace as far as you can, but do not deny our Savior. We go to battle with the word of the Lord. Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. That's what the world does. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Those are the words of Paul. Peter, a weak man like you and I, was converted by the grace of God and the power of his spirit. He preaches with boldness and indicts the religious elite. He presents Christ to them, crucified and risen. He proclaims exclusively that there is salvation in no other name under heaven but the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we cannot obtain salvation on our own accord. And we cannot win the world by our fleshly schemes. We will win the world with the divinely inspired word of the Lord and the power of his spirit. That is the call this morning. Come to Christ. Come to salvation. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. I quoted this last week and I want to end with it this week. Augustine writes in the 400s A.D. To what do these miracles witness? But to this faith which preaches Christ risen in the flesh and ascended with the same into heaven. For the martyrs themselves were martyrs, that is to say, witnesses of this faith, drawing upon themselves by their testimony the hatred of the world and conquering the world not by resisting it, but by dying. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are but weak people. We're frail and we fall apart. But you, God, are strong. And you are holy. Father, by true conversion in Christ, we are filled with your spirit. Oh, Lord, come fill us now. Save us. In your name. Amen.